All right. Good morning. I was I was going to open with a joke about spending two weeks in hell listening to Chad talk, but I didn't know if that was I didn't know if that would come across the right way, so I decided not to do that. But, uh, so I won't do that. For those of you who are visiting for the first time, last two weeks, Brother Chad has been talking to us about the nature of hell and and punishment and things like that, and so that's what that was about. So I thought. Uh, uh, Mike said that uh, as a sort of transition between uh, series talk here today, he said I could preach about whatever I wanted to, which was a dangerously open-ended situation for sure, because I thought, well, anything I thought maybe we'll talk about some 1990s sci-fi TV shows or something, or, um, you know, theological elements in 70s prog rock music or something like that, but... Instead, we're going to talk about something a little, a little more spiritual here. So, uh, after two weeks of this important talk uh, about the nature of hell and things, uh, what it would make a great transition from that would be, of course, um, the opening lines of Chapter Three of Paradise Lost from John Milton, for sure. As you recall, since you read it recently, I'm sure that. Uh, uh, the first two chapters of Paradise Lost features uh, the sort of narrow focus by Milton on the the demons really falling uh, from their war in heaven, and after the Father casts them out uh, of Paradise into where they find themselves, and so Milton spends you know a very focused couple of chapters looking at them, their condition, their nature, and hell, what it's like, and then their plan to. Uh, change their situation and how they're going to improve themselves right there. And so after this diabolical conference, um, Satan leaves and uh, departs to tempt Adam and Eve, as we see later. And so you get the sense in chapter 3, after the scene shifts away from that up into uh, the open air and the heavens and the stars again, you get this sense of uh, relief and uh, sense of a sort of breath of fresh air from Milton as he opens chapter 3 with uh, these words here. Hail, holy light, offspring of heaven's firstborn, of the eternal, co-eternal beam, may I express thee unblamed. Since God is light, never but an unapproached light dwelt from eternity, dwelt then in the bright effluence of bright essence in create. Or hearest thou, pure ethereal stream, whose fountain who shall tell? Before the sun, before the heavens, thou wert, that the voice of God, as with a mantle, didst invest the rising water, dark and deep, one from the void and formless infinite. Thee I revisit now with bolder wing, escaping the Stygian pool, though long detained in that obscure sojourn, while in my th- flight through utter and through middle darkness, born with other notes than to the Ophirian lyre, I sung of chaos and eternal night, and now I revisit thy sovereign vital lamp. So much the rather thou celestial light shine inward, and the mind through all her powers irradiate, there plant eyes, all mist from thence, purge and disperse, that I may see and tell of things invisible to mortal sight. And so he shifts from his diabolical scene to what the devils are planning to do, shifts up to uh, heaven and sees the Father and the Son and their response to what Satan is about to do there in chapter 3. And so we shift there from uh, Chad's important talk on the nature of hell to something a little happier here. We are going to look at uh, Psalm 63 here briefly this morning. And so if you want to turn there. 
We'll just talk briefly about these few 11 verses here in Psalm 63. So we live, as uh, as often been said, we live in very odd and interesting times. You know, growing up, as I said, in the 80s and 90s, um, uh, post-apocalyptic movies were very popular, Mad Max and Terminator and things like that. And I watched uh, Mad Max 2 again recently, and I noticed that the gas prices in Mad Max 2 are actually better there <laughs> than they are right now. So that was interesting. That may or may not be true. Uh, also, recently, uh, Tom Cruise came out with a movie, Maverick. I don't know if you've seen that one. Have you seen that one? It's very popular, I'm told. Um, Tom Cruise is older in Maverick than Wilford Brimley was in the movie Cocoon um, from back in the day. I don't know if you've seen that one, um, which, if you haven't seen it, doesn't make much sense. But it's about really old people needing aliens to come help them because they're super old. And <laughs> it's a classic. You should watch it. Tom Cruise is older in Maverick than, than the old people are in that one, so... That's interesting, yeah. So, uh, you know, things seem dark and depressing and terrible and the worst of all time, but it's, I'm, I strongly suggest that the kids in 1350, during the midst of the bubonic plague, thought things probably can't get any worse than, than they are right now, and uh, things got better for them during the bubonic plague, of all things. And it's quite possible that things will get better for us right now. Right? Uh, Jesus isn't waiting to come back uh, to solve our problems just because things are going bad for us in our day and, and bad for us in our neighborhood. Things have been um, really bad for lots of people around the world for a long time. You know? And if you had a bicycle, gas prices wouldn't, wouldn't be a big problem anyway. So. Uh, even if we are living in the worst possible times of human history, which is possible, but it's doubtful, I mean... If Herodotus is to be believed about what was going on in ancient Babylon, for one example, there's no good reason to abandon hope that things will get better. The problem is, though, what do we want things to go back to? Are we looking for a return to quiet anonymity where we can do our jobs and buy things at fairly low cost and not be offended by programming and commercials like back in the day? And we're, we're just thought of as good, quiet uh, neighbors. Are we looking for relief from difficult circumstances for ourselves? Or is there something else? The good news uh, is that Jesus is still the same, uh, who he was back in the day when things were better. And uh, he was the still just as good as he is uh, then, or good right now as he was back then. And so we may be in a desert-like experience for ourselves, for our, our culture, our times. And so that's why we're going to look at Psalm 63 written by David when he was in a very similar desert-like experience going through really difficult times. Right? So Psalm 63, a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me. 
Those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. Now the context uh, when David uh, wrote this, most likely, as we can sort of tell from the superscript there, is probably around 2 Samuel 15 and 16, when David is fleeing from his son Absalom, who has led a bit of a revolt against his father, kicked him out and much of the army. And so David is reflecting on his past, his life, certainly his successes, and now what seems like a pretty big failure and a pretty big disappointing situation for sure. He's been the king for several years now. He's done many good things for God, and we, and he has certainly made some significant mistakes as well. He is even cursed on his way out of town. Here he is, the anointed one of God, and some people who remember King Saul and how great it was back in the day of King Saul, and things were better then, apparently. And they curse him on his way out of town. But David, while he's fleeing in exile, uh, tells the people around him, don't punish them, don't curse them back, don't retaliate, because it's possible that God told them to curse him on his way out. And he's wondering if God told him to do that, Maybe it's something that I've done wrong and I'm being justly punished in this exile here. Or at the very least, if the curses that they're receiving from the old timers who remember the good old days, if their curses are not from God, then God will punish them in the right time anyway, so it's not their responsibility to retaliate on their way out into exile. So David has a few friends and some companions with him in his exile here in the wilderness. He's not all alone by himself, right? But many friends he has to send back even to Jerusalem, to what is sort of enemy-occupied territory in a sense, since he knows his exile would be difficult. They haven't had time to pack a whole lot of food and provisions. He has no idea certainly how long this will last, if it will be a permanent exile or anything like that. And so he is, he does have a few friends, but he's mostly alone, and he is sort of quickly has escaped out of town, and he is in a pretty difficult situation. Uh, looking back over church history, Psalm 63 was quite popular. Uh, for many centuries, it was the morning hymn of Latin, Greek, and Syrian churches throughout the Middle East. And British theologian Richard Glover says it was the opening words uh, of every Lord's Day service for several centuries in the Middle Ages as well. So this is a popular hymn, and it certainly is a, a nice short one to talk about here. Uh, but I noticed that as looking at it, it's one, been one of my favorites for a number of years for sure. Uh, but looking at it again, I noticed that there are no questions in this psalm. David's not asking anything. He's not entreating God or anything. There are no requests. Right? Uh, some commentators say that uh, maybe verses 1 and 2 are, are sort of asking God for things. But he doesn't really ask for God. He's just talking about who he is and what God has done in the past and reminding God, in a sense, what David has done in the past and reminding himself what the world was like and what it is right now. So David is not making any requests. He's not asking God. He's not questioning why these things happened. He's not asking how long is this going to last, things like that. Have I done anything wrong? He doesn't even ask God to put an end to it. He's just saying, this is where we are now, and this is how we should live right now. Everything David says is just simple statements about what is true what he has already done about it, and what he, David, will do in response to simply what is right now. So let's look at the uh, first four verses. It would have been wonderful if David had written one more verse at the end there to make it a nice 
three, you know, three groups of four verses each for a nice parallel structure. But he was on the run, and things were kind of short, so it's it's fine. Uh, the first four sections we could call seeking for God. Uh, very clever, since that's right there in the first line. Uh, Earnestly I seek you, my soul thirsts for you, my f- flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water, which is where he is right now, in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Right? And so physically David is in a, this land, and he needs physical refreshment for sure. And spiritually... Likewise, he is very aware that he needs some soul refreshment from the presence of God, just like his body needs tangible, physical refreshment. And this refreshment, though, is not new to David, right? This is just because of his change of circumstances. He's a king on the run from a prince who most likely, had he been patient, would have been king in a few years anyway. David has always, and he recognizes that he has always needed this sort of soul refreshment from the presence of God, even when things were good and times were not so, but as he, or as times were better, as he says in verse 2, I have looked upon you in the sanctuary. I have beheld your power and your glory. Right? And these things that he remembers, this is how he used to behave, where he used to meet God and things like that. And so he reminds us all what he has done before this, and he has found God, and God is a being of power and of glory. And that has not changed because of David's circumstances being less enjoyable than they used to be. And so verse 3, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. Verse 3 is possibly the most powerful and the most useful verse in this psalm. So I will spend the least amount of time talking about it and let you think about it for yourself later on. And if we believe that this verse, if we believe that the steadfast love of God is better than life itself, we should respond with a lifetime of praise, which is what David does. And what he commits to again in verse 4, I will bless you as long as I live. So I will bless you as long as I live. Because your love is better than life, I will bless you in your name. I will lift up my hands. Author Michael Wilcox says this in response to David's lifetime commitment. We should ask ourselves, therefore, whether we possess such a thirst for the triune God. Do I desire to better know the love of the Father? Do I seek a closer discipleship with Jesus? Do I crave a stronger experience of the Holy Spirit in my life? Psalm 63 reminds us of the priority that is expressed throughout the whole scriptures, apart from which we are merely dabbling in religion. Jesus taught, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, concluding the Sermon on the Mount in his teaching on the godly life. Paul said, For me to live is Christ, when weighing all other benefits of life in this world. He counted all else as loss compared with the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, Philippians 3.8, and urged us to be filled with all the fullness of God, Ephesians 3.19. As the Bible sees it, if we permit our desire for communion with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to be crowded out by earthly priorities, we deeply impoverish our souls. Section 2 is called, we can call, Satisfied in God. My soul will be satisfied with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate you on the watches of the night. Now, verse 5 is, if I can brag a little bit here, probably the way that I've been praising God most of my life with fat and rich food, and it's probably time to start finding other ways to praise God. Um, Just myself. If you're under the age of 30, you can keep doing that. It's fine. (laughs) It doesn't always work well. 
But this, this section, as with a lot of Psalms of David, has an odd sense of time, right? That David is always, he thinks of the past, the present, the future, all as sort of one sort of thing. It doesn't really matter to him. He's not placing any emphasis on, as I said, he's not longing for the good old days necessarily, lamenting now, hoping when will the future get better. He's just re- reflecting constantly that this immutable God has always been with him. He's done these things in the past. He will do them now. The circumstances don't matter because God never changes, right? And so he transitions among the past, the present, and the future quite rapidly. He knows, he's very much aware, for sure, that his circumstances are difficult in the wilderness right now, for sure. It's quite likely that he does not have a bed, right, to sleep on, um, and no fat and rich food right now. As I said, they left... If this is a psalm written in response to Absalom's revolt and they packed up and took off fairly quickly, he didn't have time to pack a lot of furniture for sure and a whole lot of provisions, as he said. So he's remembering upon the good old days, in a sense, but equating them to right now, the nature of his bed, the nature of his food right now, that's certainly diminished in quality, but it's still the situation that he finds himself in. And so even though his bed is not as good as it used to be, his food supply is not as good as it used to be, he has very little luxury to meditate upon the spiritual things during the night right now. Most likely his night watches right now are more filled with scanning for potential hazards, you know, wild animals, weather difficulties, certainly in the wilderness. Uh, if Absalom and his people have followed them out into the wilderness, for example. So his, the nature of his nighttime, uh, habits has certainly been uprooted like everything else, right? But his priority, despite all that, is trusting in God and thinking about Him, right? There is a sense early in Psalm 63, as many said, uh, the first few verses, O God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you, my soul thirsts for you. There's some nuances in the Hebrew that refer to this as an early morning activity, that the verbs that David is using in Hebrew, the earnest, uh, I seek you, thirsting for you, even some of the adverbs like earnestly, refer to early morning, dawn, like as the sun is coming up sort of activities. From the very beginning of the day, he wakes up, and as soon as he wakes up, David goes right back into longing for God mode. That's the first thing that he does when he wakes up. And it lasts throughout the whole day, through mealtime, through recreation time, even into the end of the day in the evening, the late night watches when, you know, it's probably likely at this situation that David is not doing the, the, like I said, he has a few people around him. He's not keeping guard. He's not, you know, watching himself. He is fairly well protected given the circumstances, but he is still awake at night thinking about God. He's not thinking about his own security when the danger that he's enduring, when will this difficulty end? He's thinking about the nature of God. And so God is the first thing he thinks about in the morning, the last thing he uh, thinks about while falling asleep. It's not his cell phone, it's not uh, the news, it's it's God and who he is that occupies David's thoughts all day long. And surely God has been a frequent thought of David's throughout the day. So is that true of us? Is it true of me? The answer is no, not really, but it should be, and I'll work on that, but... Uh, David has great confidence in what will come. Right? He might not be assuming 
you know, I, when I remember you, my mouth will praise you, my soul will be satisfied with fat and rich food. It's doubtful that he's thinking, I'll get back to being king again, and we'll have our lavish parties, and I'll have the nice gold plates again pretty soon. He's just thinking that even if this situation continues, he will continue to worship God and think about him no matter how long this lasts, right? And so what matters is that he will continue to find true satisfaction in who God is not the material things that he provides. That's David's point here. Even if he does get the luxuries of a nice warm bed and fat and rich food and gold plates again, um, that will be nice. But what is is most important is that God is who he is, regardless of our circumstances. And he remembers this again in verse 7, For you have been my help. In the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. God has already done great things for him, which David remembers. And that is kind of the key point here. While David is at his lowest, possibly the lowest point of his life, you know, he's been king for a long time, he's certainly had some ups and downs, made some bad choices, but now his own son is rebelling against him and has kicked him out of, out of town. He does not take the time to ask for these circumstances to end. Instead, he remembers the good things God has already done for him, And that's enough to help him endure the present circumstances. And there are plenty of other psalms, of course. I'm not saying that this is David's mentality throughout, you know, his entire life or anything. There are certainly other psalms that feature quite a number of questions of David, some quite angry questions about David, from David, about God and what's happening. How long the suffering will end, how long his enemies will be allowed to, you know, prosper against him, things like that. He does ask in quite a number of psalms when God will take a, a apparently more active role in bringing about better circumstances and better manifestations of his goodness to David, for sure. And so it's not, we're not saying that we can never ask those questions. Right? Psalm 40, for example, another great uh, psalm of David's, features both this remembrance of what God has done and a series of requests from David. Because God has done this in the past, he set his feet upon a rock, made his footsteps firm, you know, things like that from Psalm 40. David then proceeds to ask, God, because you've done this in the past... Please do these other things for us right now and in the future. So it's certainly allowable, permissible from the Psalms for sure to ask questions, to make requests of God for sure. So I'm not saying you should never ask why these circumstances are happening. What is God doing in the midst of these trials? You you certainly should ask those questions. But it does help, I think, to remember that our comfort has never been God's top priority. God's top priority is making his will and his goodness known in the world, and sometimes that requires some sacrifice, for sure, and discomfort on our parts. It's precisely because this sinful world is so constantly full of disappointments, heartaches, and challenges that the really only sensible thing to do throughout our lives is to turn to God and find true satisfaction in him, who he is and what he has already done. C.S. Lewis, toward the end of his life, said... Has this world been so kind to you that you should leave it with regret? There are better things ahead than any we leave behind. And having got our requisite C.S. Lewis quotation in, we can move on. In talking with uh, one of my uh, intro to classes earlier this spring, we were reflecting on 2021, certainly a challenging and difficult year for a lot of reasons, right? You know, I reflected and realized that I had wasted a lot of time in 2021 being disappointed because I was looking for God to do big Red Sea miracles, and all the while I was ignoring all the little daily miracles and kindnesses that he was giving me in the meantime. And God is constantly blessing us in small, simple ways. That's probably what David is reminding us of here in the psalm. So 
So let's look at what God has done and what he is doing instead of looking for what we want to see happening sometimes, right? Wilcox says of verse 8, My soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me. Having sought the Lord earnestly and found satisfaction in his presence, David resolves to secure himself to God in the future. My soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me. The picture is that of a child who reaches up to take his or her parent's hand, even as the parent reaches down to take hold of the child. The New King James translates it, My soul follows close behind you. Both ideas are involved, clinging firmly and following closely. Just a few days ago, uh, I had to go to a meeting at, a, at work at Emmaus, and, I'd, and my son had to come with me because of time and schedule changes and things like that. And so we were walking home, and after we had crossed one of the streets, he reached up to grab my hand after the crosswalk, and um, I thought, okay, that's fine. And I will gladly walk, I don't care who sees me, walking down the street holding my son's hand as long as he wants to hold my hand. You know, I'll be glad to do that and enjoy that because I know it's not going to last much longer for sure, you know. Uh, and also reminded me of um, another... I haven't seen any movies in the last 30 years, so all my references are are really old here, sorry. Uh, if you've seen the movie Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, there's a great scene, one of my favorite movie scenes of all time is at the end of that movie, if you remember that. I don't want to spoil it for you, but... <laughs> they find the Holy Grail, and it works, and it's great, you know. <laughs> But uh, the this Holy Grail is so tempting that situations are, are rough, and they and Indiana Jones finds himself in this situation where he might possibly get to grab the Holy Grail and keep it, but he's in pretty big danger, right? And his father's got a kind of a loose grip on him, and if you remember the scene, and for the first time, like in his whole life, you know, his father calls him by the name that he wants to be called by, you know, and Indiana's got a look away from this thing that he's been striving so hard to find, this thing that's an important, you know, sort of spiritual kind of thing. It's not like this, it's a bad, dangerous thing that he's looking for, right? He's been looking for something that can cause a lot of good and help a lot of people, right? And But his own life is in danger, right? And so he's got to turn away from this thing that is good and helpful, and he's got to look his father in the eye and, you know, reach up and, you know, let his father hold his hand and things like that, you know, so... I don't want to over-spiritualize this movie like it's a great metaphor for, like, I don't want to say that Sean Connery is like Jesus or anything in, in this movie. But, but it's a great scene about doing what God does here for us. You know, Are we reaching up for him, letting him hold our hand and things like that? So if you haven't watched it recently, you should watch it. It's a good one. So the last section here, 9 through 11, and should be 9 through 12, but it's, it's 9 through 11. Uh, we can call secure in God, right? We had... Seeking after God, uh, satisfied in God, and now secure in God. Right? Those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. Right? They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be apportioned for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. Right? And these verses are kind of irritating to a few commentators, because here he's talked great things about God and goodness in the past and the future, and it seems like he's had this odd sort of aside to mean people here at the end, which seems like maybe these verses were tacked on later by a transcriber or something like this. But 
I don't think it's, you know, these things, these verses seem fairly authentic as well, right? Um, but it's noticed, it's worth noticing again, again, just this psalm for sure. He does this, does different things in other psalms, but he's not looking, he's not requesting that God destroys these people, that uh, he's not looking for vengeance in this, this little section here. He's not asking God to bring suffering and destruction to his enemies. This would be especially, you know, noticeable for sure if this psalm was indeed written in response to his son Absalom, whom he clearly loves dearly. You know, if you go back and read Second Samuel, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, around there, you know, when Absalom, again, not to spoil it for you, when Absalom's revolt is put down and Absalom dies, David is not happy about that. Right, his son is dead, whom he loved very much. And so he is certainly not asking God to, you know, put his son Absalom to death or any of those people, because he knows the people. He knows all those people who have taken part in this revolt, and he cares about them, right? These are not, you know, nameless Philistines that are just doing bad things just because they're bad, you know? So God, so David does not ask God to bring suffering and destruction to his enemies, right? He knows all too well what happens to those who seek to harm God's anointed king, right? And so, which is why he's most likely has his own, again, his own history when he was having trouble with Saul back in the day in his mind as well. He is simply stating a fact. Those who seek to destroy the life of God's anointed ones, they will falter and they will cease eventually. Even when it looks like evil was winning and evil was enjoying the good things of life better than he was, it's good for us to remember that the end of evil is not a victory. Many weeks ago, you may recall, KT and others drew this dramatic line of eternity stretching from here out to the road and beyond. And our portion of eternity, I mean, we're in eternity right now. It's not like eternity stopped and then God made the world and then there's going to be another eternity. You can't have two eternities. You know, it's, it's we're all in eternity right now. I don't want to get bogged down in that, you know, technical things right now. But um, our our portion here in this present existence is pretty small compared to the eternity of existence, right? And so that is also partly what David is focusing on. You know, this momentary difficulty will come to an end. And even if we come to an end first, that's okay, because God is still who he is, right? And so David's ending to Psalm 63, says Wilcox, calls for us to conclude by asking where we stand in the spiritual progress that he describes, right? Are we seeking after God, trusting in the promises of his word? If we are, Jesus assures you of satisfaction in him. He invites you to ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find and knock and it will be given to you and opened for you. Excuse me. Have you previously sought satisfaction in the things of this world? The dry and weary land where there is no water? If so, then turn anew to the steadfast love that is better than life, which will satisfy your soul forever. God will be exalted however we seek him, either seeking for him or seeking against him, being satisfied in his steadfast love or having our mouths shut in his covenant-keeping justice. David shows us that if we turn and seek God as he has revealed himself, we will find in him all that we ever need. Even if we lose everything else, as might have happened to David, we will gain everything by saying, O God, you are my God. He will satisfy us with his love, uphold us with his hand, and vindicate our names forever. If we are wise, we will seek him early, earnestly pursuing a love that is better than life. And so there are a few lessons here from this prayer in this psalm. Do not lightly part with belief in God. 
All religious questions run into one thing. Is there a God to trust in? If the answer is yes, you know, there is a good, a good God who is bigger, better, and kindlier than mankind. Anyone can doubt the existence of God and his goodness, especially in difficult times. That's easy. But the strength and glory of the human heart are in continuing to believe that he is who he is and remembering what he has done for us. So do not lightly part with belief in God when things are difficult. I'm talking mostly to myself here, but you're welcome to listen in on these final words. And we should pray more fervently. We distress God sometimes by the smallness of our asking. And we should ask for himself and follow hard after him. So perhaps this summer, instead of just praying for lower gas prices and smarter politicians and safer vacation travels, all of which are good and all of which I'll be doing myself many times this week, I'm sure. Let's pray for finding genuine satisfaction in God, being who he is, remembering what is done, getting to know him better, and help others to do the same. My wife added this note that I should close in prayer here because I... <laughs> I don't always close in prayer. When I used to give messages back in Virginia, this old school I used to teach at, I would pray, and then the headmaster would come and pray better <laughs> to really end it. So I was like, well, if you're going to pray, I might as well just not pray anymore. So, I mean, I do pray once in a while. It's true, but we're supposed to close in prayer, so we should do that right now. Lord, we thank you again for that you are, first of all, who are who you are, and that you have done great things for us. Help us to remember the great things. Help us to notice the small things, the great kindnesses, the daily mercies that you give us each day, even through difficult circumstances that we find ourselves in, like right now, Lord. We do ask for an end to these difficult circumstances, for peace in our time, for uh, easier situations, you know, lower gas prices, you know, peaceful situations and political situations, Lord that bring about your truth and care about your goodness. But if we can't have those, Lord, we ask that you help us to remember who you are and to delight in knowing you better, helping others to get to know you better unashamedly in, in these times, and that you care for us even when things look dark and dim like they did for David here. Help us to seek after you genuinely and care for your presence more than anything else. Help us to remember that your love is indeed more important than anything else in this life. Help us as we remember that this day and throughout the rest of this week. In your son's name we pray. Amen.